Welcome to The GAC Files, a podcast about the people, issues, and ideas driving Global Affairs Canada. Bienvenue dans les dossiers d'AMC, un balado sur les personnes, les défis et les idées qui animent Affaires mondiales Canada. And now, introducing your host, Global Affairs Canada's David Morrison. Et maintenant, présentant votre hôte, David Morrison, d'Affaires mondiales Canada. Rasha Alkata is an extraordinary young woman. She arrived in Canada in the late 1990s as a refugee from Yemen, speaking only Arabic. She has since learned English and French, interned at the Canadian Mission to the UN in Geneva, done a temporary duty at the Canadian Mission to the UN in New York, and worked on communications, development, and foreign policy files here in Ottawa. Not yet 30, Rasha's extraordinary commitment to community and public service made her one of the youngest recipients of the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. Rasha came by the GAC files recently to share her words and her wisdom. Rasha Alkata, thanks for thanks for coming in. You are truly amazing. Um, if I have it right, you joined the department in 2012. You're the recipient of multiple awards uh, since then. You have a true commitment to community service. You've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. You're one of the youngest people to have been awarded the Queen's uh, Diamond Jubilee Medal for contributions to Canada. You're affiliated with the World Economic Forum. You have a rival podcast to the GAC Files. (laughs) And you are not yet 30. This, is, um, this will be extraordinary to many GAC Files listeners. And I'm tempted to just dive into your um, many accomplishments and your role here um, at the department. But let's begin at the beginning, which is itself an extraordinary story. You came here as a child, a refugee from Yemen. Tell us, tell us how it began. Tout d'abord, merci beaucoup de m'avoir accueilli. Ça fait un grand honneur d'être d'être ici. I'm I'm really grateful and and privileged to be here uh, and to, to to have a have a conversation. So, yeah, my family came in 1997 as refugees from Yemen, and you know, most of my life, I grew up in social housing. Um, and you know, here in Ottawa, here in Ottawa, uh, and moved around the city in different uh, social housing neighborhoods. Uh, the eldest of six children, which is uh, adventurous and sometimes <laughs> challenging. Um, but yeah, really, you know, really grateful to, to have a chance to have a chapter mm-hmm. here and to have a chance to come to a world with such opportunity. What was the route from Yemen to Ottawa? Um, was it yeah. via UNHCR or how, to, how? Tell us a little bit. Migration and, and refugees yeah. are topical right now. So I was six at the time, so there's only so much I remember, but uh, growing up and hearing the story of, uh, from my parents of how that journey was, we, there was no Canadian embassy in Yemen, right. so we lived in Syria for four months, mm. uh, and it was thanks to help from uh, the UNHCR and organizations that, you know, worked to, to support, we, we came to Canada, but I remember my mother sharing how she had to sometimes wait in front of the UN building to get someone Mm. to pay attention to our file because, you know, it had been one month and two months and three months and four months. And she had three young kids at the time. And 
no source of income, so it was challenging to 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 you know wait until until we come to Canada. Right. So, yeah. And once you arrived in Canada, obviously your parents had th uh, three more kids. Yeah. Um, were they able to find work? It's interesting that you that you mentioned this because I think that's one of the biggest challenges. My parents had very established careers in Yemen, and they came here, but they had three kids they had to feed. Right. So my dad started working in a pizza shop and then got a job as a blue line taxi driver and that's mm. what he does uh, until today mm. because of needing to make ends meet sure. and uh, you know I really I'm grateful for them because they had a life of self-sacrifice so I could self-actualize and and right. you know have a career and opportunities so so you're the you're the precocious uh, oldest child of this brood of six <laughs> yes <laughs> i'm just guessing but um, and you start, or you were probably into school already. T talk to us about, you know, arriving uh, from Yemen as a refugee and being thrown into the Canadian school system. You moved around, so did you change yeah. schools? So uh, I did. Uh, I did change schools, and I and I joke now, being the eldest of six, I think we have enough for a volleyball team. Mm. So that's always comes in handy. But uh, we did we did move schools and and, and move neighborhoods, um, you know, just moving from kind of one social housing neighborhood to another. But growing up, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me, that right. talked like me, that had a similar upbringing and role models that I could look up to. Mm. Uh, and I remember, you know, one instance of uh, in preschool where I was. I had met somebody that I was trying to speak with, and I could only speak in Arabic. Right. And the poor children didn't understand. Here I was trying to express myself of, you know, can I borrow your red crayon? Right. But uh, it, it was something that I think really instilled in me the perspective of the value of inclusiveness. Mm. And, and I see it actually, I was so fortunate to be able to work with some of the Syrian refugees that, that came because of the support they got mm. from the community. We had Arabic interpreters accompanying them to appointments. We had, most of them didn't need to start off in social housing or shelters and were able to get excellent housing in, you know, um, great neighborhoods. Mm. So seeing that, uh, that sort of contrast, it made me really happy to see that this is, you know, what we're, what we're offering for, for refugees coming into Canada today. Today, yeah. yeah. D different though, it sounds 20, 20 years ago. Maybe communities weren't as, uh, some communities might not have been as well organized. When, when you said you, you felt different and looked different, I'm sitting across the table uh, from you. Yeah. You're wearing a headscarf, which uh, I think you wear every day. I, I don't, t tell us when, uh, tell us about being a Muslim woman mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. part of your uh, identity, wearing the, the hijab. Mm -hmm. And uh, when that started, um, uh, how that has in how that has projected your identity and the reactions to it. So it's I compare it to so, the equivalent of wearing the Canada pin, right? Uh, in the sense of, for me, what it means is it really grounds me in my faith, and it's a every day I put it on, every morning I put mm -hmm. it on, I come to work, and it's a reminder of. The values that I need to uphold myself to of respect, kindness, compassion, service, 
And so, you, is it is yeah. it for you religious or cultural or a mix? So for me, it's religious, but it's also cultural mm. uh, in the sense of you know my mother wears it. There's a lot of uh, members you know from the uh, Yemeni community that wear it, mm. uh, but it's that's not really where I guess I ground it predominantly. It's mostly a chance to connect with faith mm. and the values uh, and to anchor me in something that can guide me in life and to be a positive contributor uh, to, to Canada. And, you know, teenage years are fraught with yeah. questions of identity, or they can be. Um, as you, or it's maybe better to say it's, it's, a, it's a stage where many of us try on different identities mm -hmm. and, and try to figure out who we are or who we want to become. Um, talk to me a little bit about... Uh, the aspects of your identity that we that we just touched upon as you went through high school years. Did you just sail through, or or did you question or have questions? I think you know, as any human being, we grow up and we are faced with certain situations or certain life opportunities that mm -hmm. make us question our identities or challenge our identities or think through our identities. So. I don't think that, you know, anyone could say at any point in time they've completely figured out their identity, sure. uh, especially in high school. You know, it's a time of change. Mm -hmm. And as you say, a time of facing sort of different situations and everyone's trying to figure themselves out. Uh, and it was hard. Mm. I went to a uh, high school where I think we maybe had five visible minorities in my graduating class mm. of 300 students. Mm. So, again, you know, there weren't that many role models and there weren't that many people to look up to. But... The great thing is people are genuinely wonderful people and, you know, if you take the moment to connect and sometimes people come um, on a good day, you know, they ask me a question, it's a great conversation mm. starter and on a bad day I'm just polite and I nod and I'm like, you know, great talking with you, moving on. So it depends kind of on, on the moment but in, in high school I was very lucky to to find a group of friends that were wonderful and supportive and you know, um, just inclusive right. and, 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 you know, a great representation of being just a good mm -hmm. human being. I'm, I'm, we won't have time, but I'm tempted to ask about your, your siblings. You, you strike mm -hmm. me as uniquely, uh, self-assured and, and, uh, and confident in who you are and what your place is in, in, in the world. I, I, I wonder if, um, uh, which is just to say, it's not easy to, to stick out for 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 uh for many people many of us and you've you've chosen uh and seem quite confident in your choices which which is obviously wonderful thank you it's high praise coming <laughs> from you so i really appreciate it thank you um but but let's let's uh move on to how you connected high school to college or university and then to to the department somewhere along the way you had a um an internship with uh, our mission in geneva yeah so it's funny because i actually started off uh in undergrad i did my first year in social work mm. so i had no idea about this field of international relations or international development or foreign policy or any of that uh, i was focused on you know trying to get into a field where i can make a difference where i could focus on the we um and it wasn't until I had a friend talk to me about this field called international development and I looked up the coursework and I read the mm. courses and I 
looked at the syllabi, email professors being like, can you send me the, the course list and the reading list? I wanna, I wanna get a sense of what this is. And I fell in love, I took a leap of faith. I mm -hmm. applied to transfer, so I had to transfer programs in universities and I was fortunate enough that the program and, and had you're a call. at University of Ottawa? Mm -hmm. So I was at Carleton and then I moved I to see. University okay. of Ottawa. And I was fortunate because there was a co-op program. Mm. And I honestly am such a strong supporter of it because mm. it really opened the way. I had no idea about Global Affairs Canada. I had no idea about the types of work uh, that someone could work on. And it wasn't until I had my first co-op experience here in 2012 that I fell in love. What, what, and, where was it? What did you do? So it was uh, with the Development Policy Institutions Division, then known as MEP. Hmm. Uh, and it was, I had an excellent, excellent supervisor and so great mentors. Mm -hmm. So that was before the evaluate or the uh, amalgamation? Yes, it was before, okay. uh, it was before amalgamation. So it was on the DFA side, right. uh, but it was, you know, a real chance to get a, a sense of the work that was being done hmm. here. And I was only supposed to stay there for four months. I extended it to by another four months. I stayed there for eight months and hmm. then I came back for another four months. So I spent a year with that team. Uh, and since then have moved around in the department and, and gotten a chance to get a flavor of, of the work we do on a daily basis. Um, the internship in in Geneva, mm -hmm. was that part of co-op or, or you lined it up on your own? So I was already going to Geneva for my last semester of undergrad and I figured it would be a great chance to get some experience working in a multilateral setting. Mm. And what better place than Canada's, you know, mission to the UN. So I was just chatting with uh, my supervisor at the time and she said, hey, I know some people there. I'll forward mm. your resume and we'll see if there's openings. And then I was like, okay, that's that. Thank you. But also that's really, really kind and, and a great way to sort of, you know, see uh, opportunities that might not necessarily be broadcasted or promoted yeah. uh, widely. And so I got an intern, and it was unpaid, but I got an internship there working. <laughs> yeah, there's a part. theme that runs through there's, these There's a little bit of a theme, and that's, you know, plug of if we can offer support for, right. uh, for interns. I'm all behind that. But uh, so it was unpaid, and I, I got the chance to work there part-time. So mm. I was doing coursework for my last semester of undergrad and then interning on Wednesdays, Thursdays, mm. and Fridays. And it was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. I did have to eat muesli and carrots every day due to budget constraints. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the wealth of knowledge I got made up for that. And so then you, 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 you told me earlier that you've worked in the department uh, in a range of capacities <laughs> and on probably every type of contract we offer. <laughs> you, you landed the much-coveted indeterminate uh, mm -hmm. contract uh, in 2016, I mm -hmm, think, mm -hmm. uh, when you won a EC4 competition. Yes. Um, how did that change your outlook on, on this place, on your career trajectory? I, I have talked to a number of uh, mm -hmm. um, millennials about their aspirations, how they deal with the uncertainty around... Yeah. Uh, the, the recent uh, reality in this department that we were unable to offer longer-term contracts. So, so you crossed that threshold. Talk, talk to us about what that felt like and how it has changed your uh, uh, plans for your career, if it has. So it's funny because uh, I have indeed 
I feel like I've worked off every contract from F-sweps to casuals to terms to co-ops. So if anyone has any questions, I'm always free <laughs> and happy to answer them. Uh, but it, it wasn't until an EC4 competition opened up by chance, 2015, uh, that I thought, okay, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here to really have a long-term career because we do hear that it is really challenging to get into terminate here and to, you know, look somewhere else. But I always knew this was a place that I, I loved working and even mm. moving contract to car- contract, it was uncertain. Mm. But so is the world. So right. is the field that we work in. So is the file. So I feel people are sometimes drawn to this department because of that aspect of adventure and uncertainty. Uh, but it's, it's, I'm grateful that I have this indeterminate now because I can think more long term Mm. and I Mm. I have you know the financial stability that my parents never had and they're so grateful and I'm so grateful and at the same time I'm also cognizant of the fact that we do need to make more of an effort to keep people here on long term because of life as well Uh, and to help them stabilize Mm. their careers Mm. and to look at how they can make the greatest contribution instead of searching from job to job, right. looking at impact to impact. Right. And so flipping that mindset, you do need a little bit of security. So I feel that's sort of, that's really where my you know, perspective has truly changed is now I'm looking at how can I have the most added value? What are the tools that I need in my toolkit? What are the blind spots that I still have when I'm working in this field? Instead of who's hiring, I need to pay bills, yeah. moving yeah. on. So what's, it's, the, what's the next one? It's challenging, but it's um, really grateful. So, so that's a good good segue um, to to some questions I want to ask about your, you have multiple identities, um, visible minority, you're um, uh, a woman, um, uh, but you're also a millennial. And <laughs> And um, I was saying uh, recently that at the senior management level, we're forever saying, well, what would the millennials think about that? Or, so, so just talk to us a little bit about your perspective as a young person in this department and, you know, the, uh, rebut the millennial caricature of entitled snowflakes. Tell us what you really like. So I think that there's a, a real diversity in the millennial perspective, but what I can tell you are the millennials I know are passionate and they're caring and they want to to make contributions and they want to change and challenge the way things have always been done uh, for a focus on the better. Not challenging for the sake of challenging, but, you know, how can we do this better? So they like to focus on the why and they like to challenge the how so we can make the greatest impact on the what. And those are the millennials that, that I know of. So being a, you know, young person in the public service, I think the one thing that I've been grateful for and I would encourage those in roles of managers or supervisors to to do is to take a young person under the wing, to trust them with challenging files, to give them the opportunity to to, you know, be at the forefront of some of the hardest policy issues and files that are not necessarily, would not necessarily come to someone maybe at that junior level. Uh, And those have been some of the most incredible opportunities that I've been grateful to have. But also to bring them into meetings. And I I see this now more than I did in in the past. And I think it's a a move in the right direction. I know now the clerk has uh, introduced the Take Me With You initiative, Mm. which is Mm. essentially senior managers bringing young people. Because talking to current managers, a lot of them tell me, 
you know, the first time I learned how to brief the ministers when I was briefing the minister, mm. how wonderful would it have been to have that opportunity in advance to, to get that mentorship, to see how it's done. So when they then needed to do that task, they knew how to, you know, yeah. mitigate and how to, how to move around it. And, I mean, yeah. it is absolutely true that the very best development opportunities yeah. are watching others in action. Yeah. Um, you know, we always think that we're too prone to think that training means going on a course uh, or sitting in a classroom, whereas one really learns from sitting on the edge of a Absolutely. meeting room and uh, yeah. watching someone brief a minister or watching a committee in action. And it is it is something that uh, I think it has has changed in the sense of we have observers at all of the governance committees. I think you can just contact mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the uh, corporate secretariat or your manager to figure out how to get uh, included. We are mindful as senior managers that... Uh, that that's how you really learn. Um, it is. You, in, in jumping around in the department, or at least on different contracts, are, do you, are you a dev person? Are you a foreign policy person? Are you a trade person? Or have you done all of those things? So I've been fortunate to get a, a good flavor. So I've worked in comms. I've worked on uh, the Pan Am games. I've worked in multilateral. I've worked in development. I've worked in foreign policy. So I think I'm a GAC person. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I hope to be, I'm still missing a bit of the trade side, but I hope to get that because it honestly clears up the blind spots. And when you're working on files, you need to see, at the end of the day, we're here to serve Canadians. We're here to you know, advance Canada's priorities and we have to work in all three and and I hope to, you know, strengthen my muscles in, in all of three mm. of them so I could have the most added value at the end of the day. So in, in thinking a little bit about whether there is frankly any difference between the millennials and the rest of us. I mean there's a there's a guy around town that you've probably seen in action who makes presentations at conferences and he's speaking on the millennials, and he starts by reading a, a fairly lengthy thing about how they're so different. And it turns out he's reading from a Time magazine cover story of the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. and, and the lesson being that all generations think the youngest generation is, you know, entitled and doesn't want to work hard and doesn't want to pay their dues and, and, and so on. But I do actually personally think that there, it's just different if you grew up with the internet. The world is mm -hmm. flatter. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people tend to have traveled more. They mm -hmm. tend to have friends all over the world. They tend to think it's normal to FaceTime rather than use the telephone. You know, so, so I do think there's a difference in outlook. And, and the proposition I'd like to test is whether that difference in outlook extends to just looking at things holistically. You, you're the not the first person uh, to come through here from a junior level who's already had experience in many of the business lines of this department. You mentioned communications, you mentioned development, you mentioned uh, uh, foreign policy, and that you'd like to uh, branch out in, into trade. In previous uh, years, you kind of got stamped mm -hmm. as soon as you walked in mm -hmm. and you were a trade commissioner or you were a, mm -hmm. a FPDS mm -hmm. uh, officer. 
is my hypothesis correct that millennials tend to see the world more holistically and less in silos? I think that's a really great hypothesis because in today's day and age, ignorance can no longer be an excuse. Mm. You know, you can't say, I didn't, I didn't know. Because it's all there for, it's if all you search there. for it. Sure. And it's, it's a responsibility of everyone and all of us to know what's happening out there in the world. And now more than ever, we have access to that. And it's also, you know, being exposed to so much of that, of what's happening in the world, you recognize that the world's problems are not siloed. Right. And they're complicated. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the real thing, right? Yeah. If, you, if you are, I always default to Colombia, but if you're the Canadian ambassador in Colombia, yeah. you don't have foreign policy problems, trade problems, development problems. You just have your relationship uh, and you have tools yeah. that you can deploy yeah. uh, to try to advance Canadian interests. Exactly. Uh, and so... I think when we're at the very top of our game, institutionally, we mm -hmm. see things holistically. Uh, but I think the, in the future, our, our leaders are going to have to be leaders who also see things holistically rather mm -hmm. from the perspective of any one mm -hmm. functional group mm -hmm. in the department. And it needs to come down through the whole department, mm -hmm. even at the, the junior level or, or higher up. I think it's our shared responsibility mm. to have those views. Yeah. I, I mean, the counter-argument has to do with the need for specialists. Mm -hmm. And in today's there world, arguably, there's for never sure. been a greater need for specialists. But but getting the balance right in yeah. throughout the workforce, I think, is the, is the trick. Let's shift to yet another part of your identity, which <laughs> is this um, extraordinary commitment to um, community service. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, in an offhand comment you work with Syrian refugees, but mm -hmm. there's been a much longer uh, tradition. Talk to us about where that comes from. So I think that I've been grateful just by, you know, virtue of being in Canada and mm -hmm. being a Canadian and coming from a world that, you know, frankly, always ranked poorly in development charts. There weren't necessarily that many opportunities and now I'm here in this wonderful country. There's abundance of resources and opportunities. And what privilege mm. I'm in, you mm. know, and what responsibility I have to, to give back and to make a contribution and to, to serve. Um, and I grew up seeing, you know, life in social housing neighborhood and, and seeing those not necessarily with maybe, you know, as much opportunity. And I think it's something that I've always just grown up with, family values of giving back and serving and, you know, focusing on the we and not being so focused necessarily with consuming, 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 but contributing and mm -hmm. giving back and switching that mindset. And as a result, honestly, it's, it's a feeling of gratitude mm -hmm. of being able to give back and to try to make even a smallest level of impact. Is, is there a, particular issue mm -hmm. in your community service that yeah. you, I, I mean, um, there, there's a little bit of modesty, uh, which is definitely not false going on here. Uh, Rasha's name is engraved in on Ottawa City Hall's wall of inspiration. She's won uh, a variety of awards for her community service work. What is the, is it, um, do you have a particular issue you focus on? So it started off really focusing on youth issues because mm. when I got involved in community service and I even understood the word, 
it was 40 hours of community service you needed to get as, it to as, graduate as part high of school. high school yeah. as part yeah, of high yeah. school you needed to get it. and then i became so to speak a volunteer junkie uh, <laughs> and i fell in love and i saw you know the real opportunity to make a difference and you don't need anything you just need mm. to show up and be like how can i help mm. and there you go so it's really started with youth engagement issues and getting young people engaged and then i got involved in uh, in the board of the social housing neighborhood where i grew up in uh, and, and trying to change, you know, broader policies to increase housing and to help those that necessarily, you know, were getting involved into trouble to get reintegrated into the community and to be sent on a, on a much more constructive path. Um, and then when the Syrian refugees came in, I there was a need for those who spoke Arabic, so raised my hand and I, I volunteered and I, and I helped out. And now I'm, you know, a, another cause that really, I guess, breaks my heart is the issue of domestic violence and those who, you know, women and children who flee their homes from violence. And I'm now really fortunate to serve on, on the board to, to help out in a, in a way that I can. So it's it's different chapters of my life have introduced me to different issues that have broken my heart. And my instinct has been to lean into them and to try to, mm. you know, raise my hand and say, what can I do? So without... Uh, embarrassing you unduly. Talk to me about what your parents think of their oldest child. It's really funny because I think they still don't understand what I do for a living. <laughs> so they're like, is this, you know, government, okay, great. But, you know, what is policy work? Yeah, what yeah. is this? So I, I, yeah. don't, I don't know if they've necessarily Lose. quite wrapped their, their heads around. But I think they're just busy focusing on six children. They don't necessarily get a chance to, to step back. But they keep me grounded and they keep me focused on what matters, you know, your yeah. impact, your contribution and and not raising the, the white flag of it's done, you know, I'm done here right. to everything that you do to do it with your full heart and yeah. to try to have that added value and to not focus so much on yourself and your ego, but what your contribution right. can be and right. what's the legacy you're going to leave here. Yeah. And so that's, that's, the conversations I have are always sort of challenging me of, you know, where's the contribution that you're making? How are you making a mm. difference? Not necessarily, you know, what's the title or what's that, but sure. what's your impact? And right. and so I think that's what they, they always hold me accountable to. But at the same time, I don't know if they've necessarily had their head wrapped around my, uh, my career sure. choices necessarily. Well, those are inspiring words. And I can tell you as a father myself that they're very proud. Thank you. Uh, so let's uh, before we both tear up, let's <laughs> let's uh, let's wind it up there. But this has been uh, just wonderful, Rasha, and your story um, from Yemen to 125 Sussex, and who knows where from here, uh, is uh, inspiring and has en enriched all of us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. If you have feedback or suggestions for future topics or guest speakers, please send David an email. Nous espérons que vous avez apprécié la discussion d'aujourd'hui. Si vous avez des commentaires ou des suggestions concernant de sujets futurs ou de nouveaux conférenciers, veuillez envoyer un courriel à David. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of The GAC Files. Merci d'avoir écouté le balado et nous espérons que vous vous joindrez à nous pour le prochain épisode des dossiers d'AMC.